Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is Keen on Democracy. A chill is enveloping the world. Everywhere I go these days, the conversation is the same. Everyone is fearful about the fate of democracy in our digital age. The same worried question is on all of our lips. What or who is killing democracy? Everybody wants to know. There's certainly no lack of suspects. Trump, Putin's trolls, Mark Zuckerberg, authoritarian populism, the wall, Victor Urban, fake news, Brexit, Bolsonaro, surveillance capitalism, Erdogan, Twitter, or last but certainly not least, the president of the People's Republic of China, Xi Jinping. So what's up with democracy these days? Is it really dying? Or is it simply shedding its industrial analog skin and updating itself for our networked digital age? That's the subject of this podcast series. This is a show featuring conversations about the most important issue of our age with some of the world's most incisive thinkers. I hope it both provokes and enlightens. Ian Bassin, the co-founder and executive director of Protect Democracy, a, a nonprofit group in the United States, which is in the business, or perhaps the non-business, of protecting democracy. Ian, does democracy really need to be protected in this day and age? It absolutely does, and here's why. For most of the latter half of the 20th century, democracy spread to more countries and improved in the countries that it was in, in a pretty much upward trajectory until about 2005. If you look at data compiled by a group like Freedom House that studies the state of democracy around the world, and in 2005, what you see is democracy begins to go into retreat. And so we're at a moment right now, as Larry Diamond of Stanford wrote in a recent book called Ill Wins, where democracy is in decline and authoritarianism is on the rise and democracy very much needs protecting. What happened in 2005? Was it the foundation of Facebook, perhaps, that led to this crisis of democracy? Well, I think, one, we shouldn't think that 2005 was a specific moment, but rather a moment after a buildup of multiple factors kind of came to a head. And I think, look, the advent of social media and new forms of technology certainly are a contributing factor, but there are other contributing factors as well. So consider this, for example. In the United States, 30 years ago, one in 16 Americans said they would be comfortable with the idea of military rule in the United States. Today, that number is one in six. Older Americans, people above 65, believe almost three quarters of them that democracy is a necessary form of government, whereas of Americans under 30, only a third of them do. So you're seeing an eroding of faith in democracy at the same time that tools, mechanisms, and systems are coming into play that make it easier for autocratic populist movements to rise. So it's a combination of factors that have really come to a head in, this, in these early days of the 21st century. It's interesting that you and Larry and the other experts of democracy pick out 2005, because of course, in economic terms, those were the, the halcyon years before the great crash of 2008 and 9. How would you, uh, how would you interpret the role of economic globalization in this crisis of democracy? Well, there's a famous graph that if you want listening to this at home, you can Google called the elephant graph. And what the elephant graph shows is the rate of change in income over the last 30 to 40 years of different quintiles of 
global wealth group. So how did the poor do in terms of their income growth over the last 30 to 40 years? How did the wealthy do? And what you see as a result of globalization is rapid income growth among the bottom really two thirds of global society. So this is all of the people coming out of poverty in the developing world, especially in places like China, India, doing really well over the last 40 years. Um, and that's the body of the elephant. And then you see the trunk of the elephant, all the way the tip top of the trunk of the elephant, which is people in the top 1% and 0.01% in the world doing really well. But who didn't do well in terms of income growth over the last 40 years? the middle class in the West, the middle class in Europe, the middle class in the United States, they fell behind as the global poor were rising up. And that, I think, drove a lot of frustration in the countries now, the United States, uh, the United Kingdom, all the countries, even in Western Europe, that are seeing this rise of autocratic populism where people were frustrated in the Western world of what democracy was delivering for them. So perhaps... They're the rear end of the elephant, are they? These, they're, uh, they're left behind. They're, yeah, they're, they're actually not the butt of the elephant. They're the, they're the slope down of the trunk before the trunk climbs back up, if you look at the visual of imagining uh, that. But in, in per perhaps more colorful language, they've gotten the butt end of the elephant, yes. So you've mentioned the role of technology and social media. You've talked about economics and globalization. What about the issue of immigration? Um, which is obviously connected with those first two, but I'm presuming that in, in, in your interpretation of this crisis of democracy, um, immigration and the threat of seemingly uncontrolled migrants, from, particularly from Africa and the Middle East, also plays a role in this crisis. Well, I think you've got two factors that are creating a bit of an explosive mix, which is changes in climate, are causing greater migration, um, both directly because you see sort of uh, regions, for example, in Africa that are no longer producing the level of resources that they used to produce, causing people to look elsewhere. I was recently in Morocco. I was driving over uh, bridges where on my Google map, it said there was a river beneath me and you look down and there was no water, right? So that's causing people to have to move. And then of course, conflict um, you look at the Middle East as causing people to move. And so you have these massive refugee flows. Now, that's happening at the same time as, going back to the elephant graph, there's resource scarcity in the developed world, in, in parts of the world that used to be growing at a much more rapid rate, when the pie is no longer growing quite as fast and there's more competition for the remaining piece of that pie, it lends itself easily to demagoguery and othering and pointing to who could be the villain. Look at what's happened in the United States where things like automation and globalization outsourcing have probably driven more of the economic scarcity and fears about where income was going to come from in the working class of the United States than actually immigration has. But it's provided a ripe opportunity for demagogues to say, who's causing your problem? The people who don't look like you coming from across the southern border. And so you've got this toxic mix of a, a smaller pie, greater competition for it, and an opening for a demagogue to assert blame. Tell me the story of this rise of demagoguery, of xenophobia, nostalgia perhaps for the, for the past. Do you think that this was essentially pioneered in Putin's Russia? 
I think Putin's borrowing from a tactic that's been used sort of uh, from the earliest days of time. If you go in New York City uh, to the Transit Museum, it's a wonderful museum that you where you can walk on uh, subway cars from the early uh, 20th century. Uh, there's a wonderful exhibit there about what the management of the railroad companies would do with the laboring class that was coming into the United States in the late 19th and early part of the 20th century was if all of the work workers uh, were working together to negotiate for better conditions for management, management would be in trouble. So what did management do? They pitted the Irish against the Italians, against the black workers. If they could keep them divided, they could keep them down. And so I think that that is a tactic that has long historical roots to it. Yes, Putin has injected a version of it into the modern world. And you see Putinism in Turkey with Erdogan. You see it in Hungary with Viktor Orban. You even see it on the left in places like Venezuela with Chavez and Nicolas Maduro. Obviously, they come from a very different economic standpoint, really, as leftist populists, not right-wing populists. But the tools they deploy once they are in power um, are very similar, right? It's the demonization of vulnerable populations. It's the aggrandizement of an executive power. Um, it's the corrupting of elections. These are very much modern-day Putinist tools. And they differ in some respects from 20th century autocrats, right? Because if you go back to the 20th century, what the autocrats in the 20th century would do is they would abolish democracy outright with an enabling act overnight. Um, the modern autocrats seem to realize that democracy is so steeped in the public consciousness that you can't simply pass an enabling act and abolish it. So what do you do? You run Potemkin democracies that look like democracies on the outside, but when you peel back the layers of the onion, there's something corrupt at the core. Isn't there another difference, Ian, though, between 20th and 21st century autocracy? That in the 20th century, the autocracies, both of the left and the right, the Nazis and the, um, and the communists, idealized the future. They believed that the future could be better than the past. The thing about the Putins and the Erdogans and the Trumps and perhaps even the Netanyahus of the early part of the 20th century, they've all created... A, a cult of yesterday. Yeah, I think that's totally astute, right? Make America great again, right? That last word does so much work there. The world is changing in ways that are causing the base voters for the Marine Le Pens and the Geert Wilders and the Donald Trumps of the world um, to really pine for a day when they had more prime of place, right? When both economically, socially, culturally, they had more control over perhaps more homogenous societies. Um, and that sense of loss of power is something that I think these modern autocrats are playing on. And so, yes, there is this and and frankly, for those of us who are trying to protect democracy, unless we are coming out there with a positive vision for how groups that are feeling left behind can see that future, we will lose that battle to the Le Pens and the Trumps of the world. Um, so I think that is a really important insight and a really important lesson for those people who believe in liberal democracy. Um, if we want to see it thrive into the 21st century, we are going to have to provide a better response to that challenge um, than the Trumps and, and wielders and AFDs of the world are providing. So your, your organization is called Protect Democracy, meaning, I assume, that you believe it still exists. Yeah, you know, I think there's a, there's a book out now by an activist named Astra Taylor 
that I'm going to forget the exact title of it, yeah. but it's something like... He's written like, also a lot about technology. I know Astra. Right. And Astra's written about how we may, um, we may not have... We may not oh, you're going to miss it. I, I think the point of the book is you may not like it now, but you're going to miss it when it's gone. You're going to miss it when it's gone, right? And I think what I love about the way Astra frames it is it acknowledges that we haven't ever had a perfect democracy, certainly not in the United States. Um, you know, we were, we were a, a country that was built on the backs of an enslaved people um, that over the course of our history have sought time and time again to expand the promise of democracy to more and more groups of people, whether they be African-Americans, whether they be women, whether they be young people. And even after extending the franchise, there have been countless ways in which we have not fully included everyone in the United States in our democracy. And yet, to use Astra's phrase, um, when it's gone, we're going to miss it because we've had an idea that we were always moving towards. And what I think we're facing now is all of a sudden a moment where we're turning away from that progress and going backwards on delivering on the promise of democracy. So yes, we need to protect it, but there's a degree to which we've always been in the game of perfecting it. Ian, you're a lawyer. You worked in the Obama administration, but don't go all lawyerly on me, all lawyerly on me, uh, at least up front in terms of protecting democracy. Uh, but so before getting to the legalistic aspect of, 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 of protecting democracy, talk to me a little bit about what you think needs to change in those broader social, cultural, and economic areas. Well, I think that there's both a governmental piece of the problem, which is on the one hand, our constitutional structure has never delivered fully on the promise of equal representation and translating majority will into policy in ways that also respect fundamental individual rights and have a rule of law. And at the same time, and there are two scholars, Aziz Hook and Tom Ginsburg at the University of Chicago who've written about this, our constitution is surprisingly vulnerable to autocratic governance, in part because as the oldest written constitution in the world, many constitutions that have been developed since uh, 18, uh, 1770, 79, have come up with innovations that are frankly, just smarter innovations than we had at the time. So just one example, um, we run elections in the United States um, where the people who run the elections are partisan officials, Republican secretaries of state, Democratic secretaries of state. That's kind of nuts if you think about it, right? That somebody who's actually on one of the teams is also the referee. Most democracies that have been developed in the last 240 years have realized that you should actually have independent technocratic bodies oversee elections. So there are ways in which our system, both our constitution and our legal system, um, leave itself vulnerable to extreme manipulation. So I think at the governmental level, those are things that need to change. But at the same time, there are things that at the social and cultural level we need to address because if we don't have a thick, unified fabric of society where people of different backgrounds and people of different ideological and political views can find ways of working together, getting along, being neighbors, um, we're, it's going to be very hard for our government not to reflect that dissension in society. Wasn't that what the internet was supposed to be, a place where we could get together and in a civil way talk about things, people of different opinions, different ethnicities, different genders? I think, you know, uh, 
the futurist Ray Kurzweil um, writes about artificial intelligence in, in response to the question of, is it going to be the Terminator? Is it going to destroy us? And his answer to it is, artificial intelligence is simply going to reflect its creators. It is going to be as good and benevolent as human beings and as corrupt and evil as human beings, because human beings have all of those parts within us. And I think the same could be said of the internet, which is, there are lots of ways in which it does wonderful things in terms of bringing people together. Um, recently, uh, Representative Ocasio-Cortez was getting ready for a congressional hearing in which Mark Zuckerberg was testifying. Um, and on Twitter, she asked, if you had five minutes to question the head of Facebook, what questions would you ask? Um, what a wonderful way of crowdsourcing democracy. So there are ways in which the internet allows for a national, local, global conversation um, that I think can be really positive. Of course, we've also seen the downsides. Um, you have entities like Facebook allowing for not really journalistic endeavors like Breitbart to be labeled as news on Facebook. These are really damaging and destructive ways in which the internet, um, and, and the fact that the internet profits off of the spreading of malice and hatred and anger and fear, and those things are very profitable. So I think it's a mixed bag. And I think the question for us now, having had this new technology introduced is, how do we wrap ourselves around it as a society, both culturally, legally, at a human level, to ensure that it moves in the direction of more of the positive, less of the negative, so it's a net gain, just as we will have to do with artificial intelligence. Interesting that you, you bring up the, the Zuckerberg hearings as a, at least a former Washington DC insider, are you surprised in the way in which um, the zeitgeist seems to have dramatically shifted from uh, a love of technology to a deep suspicion of technology within DC, which was certainly reflected in, 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 in the Zuckerberg hearings over the last few months? I'm not surprised by it, and I'll tell you why. When I was in the White House at the beginning of the Obama administration, um, part of my portfolio was ethics and conflict of conflicts of interest and sort of the issues of how a democracy is supposed to function in a healthy way. And at the time, this is now 2009, there were a lot of offers from the technology companies to provide all sorts of free services and support to the administration, the White House in particular. Google wanted to do stuff, uh, other companies wanted to do stuff. And the reaction from the staff was, this is wonderful. These companies are, you know, what's Google's phrase, uh, you know, to- Do no evil. Do no evil, right? So do no evil, this do no evil company wants to do all this free stuff for us. and. I think for those of us in the legal ethics business in the White House, we looked at it and said, these are in many ways the standard oils of today. They are the international telephone and telegraphs of today. They're offering free stuff to government. If Even you though, to, you know, to be fair, you obviously were part of the administration. Uh, Eric Schmidt was former CEO of Google, was as, as close to Obama as anyone. I think the White House records show that he visited uh, the White House more than anyone else outside the administration. Well, as business leaders have throughout the history of this country, and the point was, we should not treat the new crop of business leaders fundamentally differently than we have historically treated any other crop of business leaders. You mean take their leaders, to take their money? <laughs> well, no. <laughs> what I mean is that they have interests as well they should. They run businesses. Those interests, um, government needs to talk to them. Government needs to understand them. But just as we would never have allowed ExxonMobil 
um, to come into the White House and offer all sorts of free stuff because clearly the government has a relationship with them and that could corrupt decision making. We shouldn't allow Facebook to do that. Um, or Google or anyone else from Silicon Valley. Or anyone else for that matter. We should treat them the same. We trade any private sector company, which is there are rules that have to be complied with. So the notion that there has been kind of a reckoning where uh, there had been this assumption that these companies were somehow fundamentally different from every other private sector entity that we'd ever dealt with in this country, um, that was bound to happen. They're big companies, they have incredible power. Um, and with that comes a natural tendency to try to influence government and do things that are good and do things that have negative consequences. And, and we should always have treated them that way. And I think we're just having a moment now of a realization of, of course, we need to treat them like any other private sector company. Ian, how do we protect democracy against the increasing dominance of conspiracy theory in both on the right and on the left. It seems to be more on the right at the moment, but it also exists on the left, particularly now tied up with this uh, obsession with the deep state. You know, I think if you go back to the founding of this country, um, you had a media environment in which every political party, frankly, every political actor had their own newspaper, right? The Ohio Republican, the Georgian Democrat, whatever they were. And there was at least an understanding among the readership and the population that every one of these newspapers was really a rag for one of the political parties, one of the political actors. If you didn't have a newspaper for you, it was going to be very hard to run for office. Then you get into the 20th century with the advent of broadcast television, and there is a scarce resource of public airwaves that are licensed by the government, and an understanding that because these government-controlled airwaves are scarce, it wouldn't be appropriate for them to be used in such a partisan way. And so you develop this ethic of objective journalism in the 20th century, the Walter Cronkite uh, version of journalism, where the expectation on the part of the public was that the broadcasters were not just mouthpieces for the Republican or Democratic Party. They were trying as best as they could to be objective voices of fact. And that changes the way the audience responds to the media. Then you get the internet, where all of a sudden that breaks down again. And actually, it starts with really cable news, where it's not the airwaves anymore, that there's a little more decentralization. And you start to get more opinionated journalism again. But here's the thing. Unlike at the founding of the country, the public wasn't thinking that what they were delivering initially was opinionated journalism. The public was still living in the era of three major networks with the nightly news and objective journalism. And so you have a mismatch where the publishers now, Fox News, MSNBC, The Wall Street Journal, whoever it is, are at least on the editorial side, um, publishing a bit more of a biased line, and the public's expecting it to be objective. And that mismatch creates exactly the kind of confusion that you're alluding to, where now the more extreme versions get pushed, the Breitbarts of the world, the I don't even want to say the names of some of the other outlets that are pushing just <laughs> absolute garbage to audiences that may not realize that this is not fact. This is not news. This is propaganda. And we've got to, I think, figure out a way that we get the public back to an understanding of how to digest this information. Is it really fair, though, to, to just blame this media when someone claims that members of the CIA or the FBI or the Foreign Service are all agents of this power or that power, and that the whole news media is a fake, uh, and the state is essentially fraudulent? D don't the public themselves, if they start believing this garbage, 
don't they have a degree of responsibility here? There was a tweet the other day um, by an editorial board member at the New York Times, a wonderful journalist named Mara Gay, um, where she was responding to an article that was canvassing public opinion on uh, issues of the impeachment, where really it was clear in the article that the public was, that people who were being questioned were just woefully uninformed. And Mara wrote something like, is it too much to ask voters to educate themselves? Um, and I think it was a real serious it's not question. deep education. It's just education in the most basic common sense, isn't it? It is. And I think, look, there's obviously so many overlapping social structures that have failed in the recent era that have created an environment in which we're having systemic failure at such a level that we don't have, for whatever reason, the right sort of civic education, civic motivation, and perhaps, perhaps that we are victims of our own success in this way. Um, I always thought it was notable when I would travel in Central America, uh, places that had less stable governing systems. People were obsessed with politics, right? The public, you get into a taxi cab and everyone wants to talk politics and every news show is a political talk show and people are really engaged. And it's perhaps because it has such a direct effect on people's lives. In the Dominican Republic, what was happening with the dictatorship and the government had such a direct effect on people's lives. Of course, you had to focus on it. Whereas in some ways, the success of the United States, the prosperity, the stability allowed this wonderful opportunity for people in the United States to not care, right? That was in some ways almost a good governance dividend that got paid. And we got atrophied in our ability to be citizens. And perhaps the gift of the era in which we are in now, the gift of the Donald Trump era is it's reminding us that citizenry requires our active engagement and we are going to have to exercise our muscles again. And perhaps we come out of this moment a much stronger body politic for it. Perhaps also the, the era of Donald Trump reminds us of the importance of elites, like it or not in democracies, uh, because democracies are just as stratified as, as any other system. Um, you're, a, like it or not, a member of the American intellectual, political elite. You went to Yale Law School. You worked on the Obama administration. You're comfortable on, on both coasts. Is the crisis also, to some extent, particularly in America, a crisis of elites that for one reason or other, the, the American elite has not figured out how to sort of square the circle between its own privilege and responsibilities? Well, look, I think one of the geniuses of the American founders was they recognized that a successful society depended both on the proper role for the elites, that was going to be the Senate, and for the broader public, and that was going to be the House of Representatives, right? And they paired those two because a society that is only elites starts to look like feudal Europe. A society that doesn't have any role for them at all starts to look like some of the more populist uprisings we're seeing today. They need to go hand in hand. And I think you're right that one of the things that happened recently was such a failure at the elite level. And Chris Hayes has a wonderful book on this called Twilight of the Elites yeah. that really predicted, I think Chris really predicted a lot of what we're seeing today, which was there was such elite failure that the trust between the broader public and the elites broke down. 
and the broader public said, screw these people. They're ruining every institution we have. The system is broken. We're taking over. Um, and you got you lost that marriage that was so important to the American framing. It's interesting that you bring up Hayes because isn't in your a progressive, you're on the left, uh, isn't one of the intellectual challenges and perhaps opportunities of the early part of the 21st century are for progressives to figure out how they can embrace the idea of elitism. Because clearly, uh, conservatives have rejected the notion. Yeah, and I think obviously, um, so much of this is now about nomenclature and signaling and the the loadedness that certain words have. And there has been such a rejection of the idea of elite that it's going to be very hard, perhaps even to use that word. But clearly, Are you, will you acknowledge publicly you're part of an elite? Absolutely. And would you acknowledge that we need elites? Absolutely. I think that having look, this was one of the innovations of the New Deal under FDR, which was that, uh, you know, modern society was getting so complicated, that government needed technocratic experts to be able to know how to do something. So just take, for example, the Food and Drug Administration, right? Um, with the with the innovation of pharmaceuticals that are such amazing things for extending and improving human life. I think we would all agree, myself included, that we want someone running tests of pharmaceuticals who has a degree of expertise in making sure that they're safe for the consuming public. That person is going to be someone who's had extensive training in science. And they are going to necessarily be call them what you want. Let's call them an elite. That's the word we're using here. They're going to be elite. And there's an important role for that person. We want that person overseeing a bureaucracy that makes sure that the drugs that we ingest are safe for us. At the same time, if that person fails at that job, that person is going to lose the trust of the broader public. And if the broader public's not bought in, um, then we don't have a functioning system. So I absolutely, Protect Democracy is very much an organization that brings together people with elite expertise on issues of governance and issues of democracy. Um, but we absolutely could not alone protect democracy. That has to be a broader effort of the public and the citizenry at large. So final question, Ian, an easy one. We're talking on Friday, the 25th of October in Berkeley, California. This interview will be published, I think, on Friday, November the 1st. So what's going to happen in the next week? Are we going to see the end of the Trump presidency? I can make a prediction with great confidence today, a week before this episode is going to air. The week that listeners have just witnessed will be the worst week of Donald Trump's presidency. How can I make that prediction with such confidence? Because every week he's in office is going to be the worst week because he is fundamentally a corrupt person corrupting the office of the presidency of the United States. But at some point, will the dam break? It, it's obviously probably not going to be next Friday. At what point does... All the evidence about all these issues from you know, Ukraine to everything else, at what point does it become so unambiguously clear that he is deeply corrupt, that he simply has to go? Or maybe it won't become clear. Well, this is the question about whether our democracy survives or not. Because well, Easy one for you to end on then. If, if it becomes clear... Um, to enough of the public, I think you will see a very rapid move by Senator McConnell and the Republicans in the Senate to realize that their future political fortunes depend on throwing the man overboard, and that'll happen relatively quickly. If it doesn't become clear, I think there's a real danger about what the future of American democracy will look like. 
here's the scariest thing that I think about on a daily basis. If the House votes to impeach the president and the Senate votes to acquit him, the nuclear weapon will have been fired and missed. What check will exist on Donald Trump at that point? What will stop him from going even further to abuse the powers of his office to keep himself in power? At the end of the day, the ultimate check is the American people. And so perhaps the ultimate time that your question will be answered will be November 3rd, 2020, when we will find out whether our democracy survives for another 240 years or it doesn't. And what's your sense then predicting a year forward, 2020 November? Uh, could conceivably a man of his self-evident corruption uh, be reelected? Could he? Yes. Will, will he? he? No. The American people have seen challenges far greater than this one, and we have survived them, and we've gotten better for it, and I have faith the American people will survive this one too. So finally, Ian, you come out as a positive, optimistic American. I am. Um.